Just an interesting uh, bit of news I saw in... Apparently the Sunday Telegraph today is reporting that the threat of homegrown terrorists attacking Britain is greater now than at any time since the 9-11 attacks in America. The paper based its story on a leaked intelligence report uh, which said that more than 2,000 British-based Islamic terrorists are believed to be plotting attacks according to a government threat assessment prepared this month which the Sunday Telegraph said it had seen. The scale of Al-Qaeda's ambition towards attacking the UK and the number of UK extremists prepared to participate in attacks are even greater than we previously judged. The newspaper quoted the document as saying, as the MI5 Director General Eliza Manningham Buller has stated publicly, the threat of terrorism in the UK is very real and includes the intent to kill people and damage our economy. The statement said Manningham Buller said in November that 1,600 people were suspected of involvement in terrorist plots against British targets. So we're living in, in strange times. We're living in dangerous times. We need to pray for our forces of law and order that they will be directed uh, to do the right thing and for our government as they take action. Talking about that, we're talking today about, I've headed the little talk, God acting in government. And we will have Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy chapter 2 and the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 3 in mind. Just a couple of verses in both those chapters. Uh, at the end of chapter 2 and verse 34. And we took all his cities, talking about Zion, who had come uh, out to attack them, we took all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men and the women and the little ones of every city. We left none to remain. Only the cattle we took for a prey unto ourselves and the spoil of the cities which we took. And a similar few verses in chapter 3 of King of Bashan, the man with the big bed. All these cities, it says in verse 5, were fenced with high walls, gates and bars, being beside unwalled towns a great many. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did unto Sion, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women and children of every city. But all the cattle and the spoil of the cities we took for a prey to ourselves. Last week, as we looked at these verses, we saw that God had given Israel a wonderful victory. Firstly, against Zion, and secondly, against Og, king of Bashan. Both powerful and famous throughout the surrounding countries and areas for their strength and power. We saw how the terror of the Israelites, as God said, uh, would take place, had taken place around the neighbouring kingdoms. 
God said that the terror of them would be, the people would be afraid of them. And that we saw regarding Jericho. When they went to attack Jericho, Rahab, who hid the spies, said that they were terrified. The people were terrified of the children of Israel. And they had closed all the gates of the cities and they were waiting for uh, siege conditions. In both of these theatres of war, I suppose we could call them, the Israelites captured large herds of cattle, not to mention the booty from the towns and cities which they utterly destroyed. It says, the spoil of the cities which we took, and the cattle and the spoil of the cities we took for our prey to ourselves. But also in both of these campaigns, we read there how they utterly destroyed the men, women, and the little ones of every city. I suppose our natural reaction, and probably our fleshly reaction, is that these events, as recorded here, seem to be very brutal, cruel actions against women and children. We could accept perhaps that the men were being killed because they were mostly soldiers coming out against them. But wiping out women and children. Now, before we start looking at this, we must be very careful before commenting on any of these events as recorded in Scripture that we do not fall into the trap of criticizing what God had commanded. That's very important. God had commanded that this would be the case. So we must be careful before we comment on any of these that we do not fall into that trap. We always assume that people nowadays have become more tender-hearted and more conscious of not harming other people. I don't know whether that is true or not because when we think of recent things like the Holocaust and uh, a lot of the massacres in, in Africa recently, I don't think that is the case. But generally speaking in the Western world people have that attitude. There was a guy called Woodbine Willie whose real name was Studdard Kennedy and he was a uh, what do you call him? He was in the uh, chaplain, chaplain in the First World War. And he wrote a poem which I have quoted before, but it's, it's an interesting poem. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns, red were his wounds and deep, for those were crude and cruel days and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They never hurt a hair of him, they only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained, the winter rain that drenched him through and through. 
The crowd went home and left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. The point he was bringing out was men had grown more tender and they would not give him pain. We feel that we are now in a society which doesn't need pain and suffering to that extent. All those Jewish sacrifices that took place in the Old Testament to many people they are gory and they don't want to talk about them. How many times you have heard people saying that killing animals is really not on and so they become vegetarians. Somehow they feel that they are more sensitive to animals than God was. But putting aside all these sensitivities and pseudo-religious thoughts, what are we to make of such events recorded through the Bible? Events such as we have been reading, which took place in Deuteronomy. You know, unless God wanted us to be aware of these the Holy Spirit would not have recorded them and it says quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 and I'm reading from the American Standard now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved do not be idolaters as some of them were nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. All the things that are recorded in Scripture, there's a reason for it and there's a point for it. And Paul says, writing there, that they were there for our example, so that we could learn lessons from them. was very much aware that such records would give rise to criticism and much debate from sceptics and others. So why not leave them out? No doubt if we were doing it we probably would have left out those kind of bits. But on this thought, and I was thinking about this, why did Jesus give as the base proof of his deity the story of Jonah being in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. That was the, the he based this proof of his deity on that event. An event which sinful man has ridiculed since forever. And Jesus also based the future proof and surety of wicked times ahead on what? on Noah's flood another event which is held up to ridicule by so called scientists so we must never let our feelings get in the way of seeking to see the true meaning of any passage 
if Jesus was prepared to base his deity on Jonah and the whale and the future events going to take place as happened at the flood you'd have thought he would have based it on something much more acceptable to humans but no he based it on the fact of the God, God's word however having said that it is a difficult concept the fact that women and children were wiped out but presumably it's an important one to try and understand now I don't know whether I will be able to explain it fully but we hope by God's help we will look at a few things that might make it easier for us to understand why this happened you're bound to hear people commenting on such things surely God cannot be regarded as a God of love and still condone this type of slaughter of innocence you'll hear often repeated the unconditional love of God God's love and quite often the unconditional love of God but is that right? in John 3.16 it says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life wonderful verse the most popular verse in the world for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die but although God loves the world those who do not believe on him who do not accept his salvation what does it say he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God and this is the condemnation why is the wrath of God on these people it is because light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil when we accept Christ as saviour then he hath made us accepted in the beloved that's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 in whom it says in, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace he hath made us accepted in the beloved we're accepted then by God before we accept Christ as our saviour God loves us but we are under his wrath if we come to Christ and become a child of God then because of that we are accepted by God that is the condition under which we come into the assurance and the enjoyment of God's love we become a child of God just by the way I was looking at this and we become a child of God but there are two things here we can become a child of God but we need not necessarily become a servant of God 
They're two distinct things. I love my child. But if I tell him to fix my car, it might be, he might do more harm than good. Why? It's not that I dearly love my child. No, it is not. It is because he is not a mechanic. He has to become a trained mechanic. More easily to understand, perhaps, would be to take the example of the Queen, a monarch. Prince Charles may be a loved child of the monarch, but he would not be a good Prime Minister because he has to become a trained servant of the monarch in order to act as a Prime Minister. And we are, by birth, a relationship. We are children of God. But through our lives, through working out our salvation, through training, we become servants of Jesus Christ. We are all children of God, but make sure we are also all servants of God. Relationship and the office of service and servant are two distinct things. So just That was just by the way. But God loves us each one. And we, everybody will tell us God is love. And I thought we would look at a few attributes and characteristics of the almighty God. And the first one I put down here was the fact in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. God is a God of love. And God is love. He's the whole essence of love to those who put their faith and trust in him. Isaiah 45 and verse 21. Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. God loves us, but He's also a just God. And that's why He cannot accept us until we come to Jesus Christ. He's just. He's a just God. But you know, one of the, the texts which we don't hear all that often and certainly since children stopped learning the Ten Commandments Deuteronomy 4.24 for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire even a jealous God a jealous God he is jealous of his glory he will not give his glory to another Joshua 24 and verse 19 Joshua speaking to the people he said you cannot serve the Lord because they have sinned 
For he is an holy God. A holy God. We cannot grasp the holiness of God. He cannot look upon sin. He is totally holy. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, we've had this verse recently on other talks. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. God is a righteous God. Oh, we go into court, we expect to have a righteous judgment in the courts. Quite often we don't. We see miscarriages of justice. That will never happen with God. He is a righteous God, a righteous judge. Another thing about God is that we can be sure that he is not a God who will suddenly disappear someday. Deuteronomy 33, 27. He is the eternal God. The eternal God is thy refuge. Isn't that wonderful? He will always be there. He's our refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He holds us up. And we can be sure that he will always be there as our refuge. The eternal God. Another wonderful attribute of God is in Numbers 14 verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. And by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of their fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Oh yes, to those who love him, he is a merciful and forgiving God. But he will not forgive those who do not come to him for forgiveness. And therefore, because of that, in Isaiah 30 and verse 18 we read, And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. He's a gracious God. And therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. He's a merciful God. For the Lord is a God of judgment. He is a God who will judge and institute judgment upon people. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Malachi, when he was talking about God, he was talking about the people who had wearied God with their false offerings. And he he said, the people were saying, Malachi 2.17, God speaking, ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, this is God speaking to them, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delighteth in them. And that's what's happening nowadays. People say, good is evil. Evil is good. Everybody makes up their own mind. There are no standards anymore. No absolute standards. And they were saying, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? Oh, they they thought God had just ignored the whole fact that they were sinning. Where is the God of judgment? God is a God of judgment. A couple more. 
Hebrews 13 verse 20 now the God of peace that brought again the dead from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant the God of peace oh to those who follow him he is a God of peace to those who don't he is a God of wrath and a God of judgment Deuteronomy 4.13 for the Lord thy God is a merciful God he will not forsake thee neither destroy thee nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he swear unto them God is a merciful God the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting there are many many more uh, attributes and aspects of our God the almighty God the God of all the heavens and the earth listen to what Nahum Nahum speaking about this wonderful God of ours he said in Nahum 1 5 to 7 the mountains quake at him the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence yea the world and all that dwell therein who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger his fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knoweth them that trust in him oh that description of God and yet he can say to those that trust in him the Lord is good I'm going to read a long passage out of Job Job that poor man who lost everything and had so many troubles very ancient book say it's one of the oldest books in the Bible but I'm going to read from chapter 38 I was going to read even more than this but I, I thought I better cut it down <clears throat> Job 38 and I'm reading in the New American Standard the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth tell me if you have understanding who set its measurements since you know or who stretched the line on it or where its base is sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb when I made a cloud its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and I said thus far shall you come but no further and here shall your proud waves stop God's mighty power now have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place 
that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths of its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattereth on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood, or a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it. To satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the seeds of grass to sprout. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice? And the frost of heaven, who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you bind the chain of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season, and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinance of the heavens, or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, so that the, an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the innermost, uh, innermost being, or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom, or tip the water jars of the heavens? When the dust hardens into a mass and the clouds stick together, can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair, who prepares for the raven its nourishment? when its young cry to God and wander about without food. Job answered, What can I say? Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Job and in the, the chapter 39 it goes on in the same vein God just explaining to Job his greatness and his power and challenging Job as to what he can do 
and what God can do. We have this wonderful picture of God in our thoughts. And having seen that, it's easier to understand his almighty actions. God in scripture acts in many ways, but in two ways that we know so well. He acts in grace. And he acts in government. Now we are all aware of the grace of God. This today many churches are remembering Wilberforce. The great man who was responsible for the eradication of the slave trade. And one of those men who had been a slave trader wrote that wonderful hymn Amazing Grace we have seen God in our lives and in the lives of others acting in grace by grace are ye saved through faith amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see was grace that brought my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed through many dangers toils and snares I have already come tis grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home the Lord has promised good to me his word my hope secures He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine slave trader who became a Christian through grace we're all saved by grace the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we are saved by grace not by works but through grace but you know there is an important truth of God working in the governments of this world throughout the world he works mere mortal man imagines that he may hold God to account for his actions we have seen the majesty and wonder of God in that passage from Job and the passage in Malachi You know, Abraham Abraham had the the right attitude when pleading with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fact that Lot was there. What did he say to God? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That should be our attitude to everything that God has done. Shall not the God and the judge of all the earth do right? We look at God's creation. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 9. I'm going to read this from the Amplified, so I'll just read it. Isaiah talking about this same kind of subject. Man 
querying God's actions. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Woe to him who strives with his maker. A worthless piece of broken pottery among, among other pieces equally worthless. And yet presuming to strive with his maker. Shall the clay say to him who fashions it, What do you think you are making? Or, Your work has no handles. He's saying that this piece, we are all like pieces of broken pottery, amongst other pieces of worthless pottery. And the master potter, we're querying his decisions. What do you think you're making? The, the, the picture is so futile, isn't it? A potter, a bit of pottery querying what the potter is making. All that we are, all that we have, the air we breathe, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the climate in which this earth is maintained, everything depends on God we are dependent completely upon God as we have said so often the children of Israel going through the wilderness there was nothing that they can depend on unless what came from God in the Lord Jesus Christ we have everything Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 here's what it says for by him, the Lord Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether, listen to this, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the first form born from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. All things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him everything we've been looking backwards and forwards at Nebuchadnezzar in the last few weeks and what was the testimony of that despot Nebuchadnezzar he was in complete control he could do what he liked in his kingdom therefore when God worked with him and worked on his life that despot realized an authority higher than him he could do anything he could wipe out people without anybody querying it and therefore what he said here is very interesting 
Remember, he had been brought down very low. He he had been uh, given a, a, a problem when he went out into the fields and he ate grass like the cattle. But here was his testimony after that. At the end of the days, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven and mine understanding returned unto me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honoured him that liveth forever whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou same type of thing that Isaiah was saying about the potter and the bit of pottery at the same time my reason returned unto me and the glory of my kingdom mine honour and brightness returned unto me and my counsellors and my lord sought unto me and I was established in my kingdom and excellent majesty was added unto me now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol the honour of the king of heaven all whose works are truth and his ways judgment and those that walk in pride he is able to abase what a wonderful example this man gave of the sovereignty of God you know it's interesting that we're saying that God appointed these kings and empires in their place we read that in that passage in the New Testament and it's interesting just to to go on about Nebuchadnezzar uh, in Ezekiel 29 and verse 18 to 20 it says son of man Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon caused his army to render heavy service at my bidding not interesting God caused his army to render heavy service at my bidding against Tyre Nebuchadnezzar went up against Tyre but God here says that it was at his bidding that he sent Nebuchadnezzar up against Tyre every soldier's head became bald and every shoulder was worn and peeled with carrying loads of earth and stones for the siege works they sieged they besieged Tyre and the men were carrying these stones and it wore them out goes on to say yet Nebuchadnezzar had no remuneration from Tyre in proportion to the time and labour expended in the 13 years siege they besieged Tyre for 13 years either for himself or his army for the work that he had done against Tyre for me God says for me therefore thus said the Lord God behold I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and he shall carry off her great mass of people and of things her riches and take her spoil and take her prey and it shall be the wages for his army oh he said he came off very badly against Tyre when he did it for me but because of that 
I'm going to give him Egypt. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor with which he served against Tyre because they did it for me, says the Lord God. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar was not aware that he was doing that as part of God's universal government. It was through that when the children of Israel were taken captive in Babylon, it was through a decree of Cyrus, another despot, that the people came back to their land. When we see God working in government throughout the earth, we see him displaying his power in the way of righteousness, destroying evil nations, destroying evildoers, overthrowing empires and governments, destroying cities, destroying tribes and destroying people. All through his government of the world. The flood wiping out all those upon the earth except those eight souls in the, in the, in the ark. Destroying Sodom and Gomorrah because of its wickedness. Destroying the tribes of Canaan. We can go right on through scripture and see how God worked in the government of the world. And God wanted us to be aware of these things. But we cannot comprehend the working of God. We're bits of pottery. We cannot say to the potter, What doest thou? If we could, we ourselves would be as God. Paul was a brilliant scholar. He was used by God to explain some very difficult mysteries of God. Even Peter said, the brother Paul says things difficult to understand. He was taught under the leading teachers of his time. Here's what he says. Romans 9 verse 20 to 22. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing moulded will not say to the moulder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We don't have the right to query why God did things or why God does things. He is omnipotent. In closing, just look at this particular group of people who were destroyed in Deuteronomy the killing of the women and children here God has a plan and purpose for this world and he will fulfill it as he desires, that's what we have to get into our head let's just turn for a minute to Genesis chapter 15 
And in the fourth generation, they, your descendants, shall come back here to Canaan again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full and complete. God was speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15. And he, he was telling him that this land will be theirs. Eventually, after four generations. Now here the Amorites covers the tribes against whom the Israelites were to contend for the promised land. It includes all those tribes, the various tribes of Canaan. And God was making a covenant with Abraham. The Amorites who dwelt in the land would be punished, but obviously not just yet. It says here that the Amorites is the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full and complete. It would appear that God would permit a nation to proceed proceed in its evil way up to a point. And when that point was reached, God would act. And he says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. That period has not yet been reached. Not yet full. But in four generations, there was going to be action taken. And the four generations brings us up to Deuteronomy. If we look at Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 24, it says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these things, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. Those nations which were living in Canaan and the surrounding areas were defiled. The land has become defiled. Therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations. Neither the native nor the alien who who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled. So that land will not spew you out, should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nations which has been before you. The land was defiled was so defiled that God said judgment had to come upon it. These lands had become so evil that God had to intervene to clean up the land and its peoples. And in judgment he used the children of Israel to carry out his plans. And now the fourth generation has arrived in Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3. And the Israelites were now in turn fulfilling that prophecy which God had given to Abraham those many years ago, about 400 years previously, that the times of the Amorites would eventually come. Genesis 15:16. that prophecy was literally fulfilled. Moses, for example, who led the Israelites back to Canaan after their 400 years was in the fourth generation from Jacob, Levi, Kohath, 
Amram and Moses. God's word will always be fulfilled. And so perhaps at the end of that talk you'd say, well, we haven't come to any great conclusion. Well, we have. The conclusion is that God will work in the governments of men. And it is not our job. We don't have the right to criticise or to query what God is doing. And the reason is so clear in Psalm 131. A very short little psalm. But the first two verses of this psalm John, Psalm 131 Lord my heart is not haughty nor mine eyes lofty neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother my soul is even as a weaned child trust God completely his works are beyond our comprehension but be like the psalmist the Lord my heart he says is not haughty nor mine eyes lofty neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. In utter and complete trust put your faith totally in God.